Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our scripture reading for the sermon this evening comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 11. The Word of God reads, In the Beloved we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And that is the word of the Lord. Well, as you know, we are in the middle of a mini-series on the Holy Trinity, one God, three persons. Last week, we focused on the grace of God the Father, and we focused on the grace of God the Father to the praise of His glory. But this week, we are going to focus on the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we want to consider the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for the praise of His glory. Paul has told us in Ephesians 1 that God the Father blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Last week we saw some of those spiritual blessings. We saw the blessing of election and predestination. And I hope that by now... Those words which might have been scary to you last week are less scary and perhaps comforting to you this week. We also saw the blessing of adoption in Christ as God the Father brings us into His family in Christ. But this evening we want to see that there are other spiritual blessings in Christ. The glory of Christ's grace is manifested in the redemption by His blood. The revelation of God's mystery, the reunion or restoration of all things in Christ, and the rewarding of His brothers and sisters. So tonight what we're going to do is look at four truths that come to us in this passage. As we focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ for the praise of His glorious grace, we want to see that Jesus Christ redeems His people. That Jesus Christ reveals the mystery of God's will to His people. Jesus Christ reunites all things for His people. Jesus Christ rewards His people. Paul tells us in verse 7 that in the Beloved we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. I want us to take a moment to focus on the word beloved. It's actually a word that appears at the end of verse 6. But when 7 begins in Him, it's referring back to the beloved. And it's referring to Jesus Christ, the true and better Son of God. This is a word that is used throughout the Old Testament and New Testament to describe God's relationship to His Son. In Isaiah 42, 1, the prophet says, My servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights. That passage of Scripture is echoed by Matthew in Matthew 12, 18, where he cites Isaiah 42. But notice the change in language from Hebrew to Greek. We get, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. You see the change, whom I uphold to whom I have chosen, my elect to my beloved. And what this shows us is that in the mind of God, in the revelation of the Holy Spirit, there is a connection between elect and beloved. The words are used synonymously and interchangeably in these passages of Scripture. We also learn in the gospel on two separate occasions that the father referred to Jesus as his beloved. The first time he refers to Jesus as his beloved was when Jesus was baptized and the father referred to Jesus as his beloved son. Then later in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that on the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke to the disciples of Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And so between the words of the prophets and the words of the Gospels, we have God identifying for us that Jesus Christ is the Beloved. In our scripture reading before the sermon, as we all read together from Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, that section ended with this statement, the church saying of Jesus Christ, my beloved is mine and I am his. And so the blessings of grace that are lavished upon us by the Father and coming to us through Jesus Christ are built upon love. Love embodied, love incarnate in Jesus Christ. Now the spiritual blessing mentioned here is the blessing of redemption. That in the beloved we have redemption Through his blood. The word for redemption can mean deliverance. It's an echo of Exodus 6 6, where God speaking to Moses says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. 
And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And what God says to Moses about the children of Israel and his desire to redeem and deliver them from slavery becomes a shadow type for what God did in the substance and reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. For it was at the cross that God redeemed and delivered his people with outstretched arms and with a great act of judgment. And the redemption that came to God's people came through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the blood of the God-man. And so we see God getting his hands dirty as he enters into our story and experience to purchase us, to deliver us, to rescue us from bondage to sin, the flesh, and the devil. Attached to this spiritual blessing of redemption is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness carries the idea of lifting away burdens, taking away our yoke, removing from us the crushing weight of our guilt and shame. That's what forgiveness is. And so God the Father is promising that in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our trespasses and sins, the record of debt that was held against us, is going to be obliterated, removed, taken away from us, so that we're no longer held under the yoke of slavery, but instead we are liberated. And so attached to the idea of redemption and deliverance is the idea of liberation. Liberation from our sins and the consequences of them. And how does God do this? Well, Paul makes it very clear that God the Father does this in Jesus Christ according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. The idea here is that God is the wealthy one who comes to those who are impoverished and he supplies for them all they need and even more than they need out of his treasury of mercy and love and grace for his people. God is the one who lavishes it upon us. It means that he causes it to abound. He lays it on thick. He doesn't just give us a little trickle here and there, but He provides all we need and more than we need. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 that Christ who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. Now there are some people who misuse this language and promote the prosperity gospel as if God the Father in Jesus Christ only intended to make us wealthy in a material and physical sense. But what God is intending to do in Christ is much better than make us wealthy in a material sense. 
He intends to take us who are impoverished by our slavery to sin and broken by the weight of trespasses crushing down upon us and liberating us, setting us free, but providing us with all we need for life and godliness. God provides what we need in Christ according to his divine wisdom and understanding. Now, for people who imagine that every spiritual blessing in Christ should include or involve some kind of material, physical blessing, for those who are disappointed by the fact that the spiritual blessings mentioned here simply include redemption, forgiveness, liberation. I want to suggest that if you are disappointed in hearing this news, it's likely that you don't understand the gravity of your own sin. It's likely that you don't quite grasp the terrible situation you were in when you were in bondage to sin, when you were enslaved to the devil, when you were under a yoke of bondage. But for those of us who have come to grips in some measure with the shame and guilt of our sin, we hear in this truth, in this doctrine, the good news of Jesus Christ. We hear relief and refreshment coming to us. We hear that there is rescue and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is glorious grace indeed. Jesus Christ also reveals the mystery of God's will to his people. He does this in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, the mystery that is mentioned here is now an open secret. There was a time when the mystery was kept secret in the heart and mind of God from before the creation of the world up until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To say that God the Father or God the Son, God the Holy Spirit played this mystery close to his chest would be a massive understatement. The angels did not know. The demons did not know. Man did not know what God had planned and prepared for those who love him. And here Paul tells us that Jesus Christ reveals the mystery to his church, to those who are elect by God and predestined to be adopted into God's family. Those people hear the mystery of the gospel revealed to them. And the mystery is revealed and explained to them by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God through the preaching and teaching of the gospel. In one of his letters, Paul says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, a mystery 
wisdom of God, in which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now get this. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is arguing that if sinful man, if the rulers and the powers and the authorities had known God's mystery and what God intended to do through the person and work of Jesus Christ, they would not have cooperated with God in his plan. They would not have cooperated with God in his purpose. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Something which God had determined should happen before the creation of the world. Later on in Ephesians, Paul unveils the mystery and explains to us what the mystery is in the context of the letter to the Ephesians. So we don't have to guess and try to make up what we think the mystery is. Paul explains it to us in this way in Ephesians 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, from our point of view in the 21st century, looking back at over the the work of God by His Spirit in the world and bringing the gospel to the nations, this might not seem like such a big deal. But in the first century, to hear that this was part of God's plan and purpose for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go out to all of the world, not the Jews only, but also the nations, this was revolutionary. In other words, God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, is to be a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural community. This is tied up with the mystery of the gospel. Our mission is to make known the manifold wisdom of God, to unveil the mystery of God throughout all of the cosmos. And we are to display what the mystery looks like in our communities. We are to be cross-cultural. We are to be Red, yellow, black, and white. We are to span the globe as we bring the gospel to every tribe and nation and language and people. The mystery of the gospel that is revealed in Jesus Christ is that God intends to save the world through Jesus Christ. Now, this mystery is deep and is profound, and it's at the center of the Christian faith. It's not a marginal issue. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3 that church officers, elders, and deacons must hold the mystery, the deep truths of the gospel, with a good conscience. And so it's so important that the leaders of the Christian church must hang on to this and make it part of the mission and purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice that at the end of verse 9, Paul says something beautiful here to us. He says that God did this according to His purpose, according to the ESV. 
but according to the Greek, it's according to his good pleasure. Now, last week, I took a shot at the ESV. I was trying to pick on the ESV for missing this very important translation, good pleasure. And I accidentally took a swipe at the NIV, and I want to issue apologies to the NIV and those of you who read the NIV. In fact, as I work through Ephesians 1 over and over again, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the NIV is actually much better for us than the ESV when it comes to Ephesians 1. They capture some of those sweet and beautiful nuances that we need to hear, like this one. That God has revealed the mystery of His will in Christ for His people according to His good pleasure which He set forth in Christ. I don't want you to miss the idea of God's good pleasure being set forth in Christ. So often, those of us of the Reformed tradition are criticized for being members of the frozen chosen And people criticize our view of God as sovereign, as as though God were this monolithic abstraction, far removed from us, cold and isolated. And yet, Paul is going uh, going to great pains in Ephesians 1 to show us how tender and gracious and loving the triune God is. To show us that The triune God working together, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working together to redeem and reveal. Do these things out of good pleasure. It brings God the Father pleasure to adopt sinners into his family in Christ. That's what we saw last week. And here we see that it brings God the Father pleasure to reveal the mystery of His will to His people in Christ. God delights in His servant Jesus. God delights in His beloved one. He is well pleased with Him. Same word that's used. He is well pleased with Jesus And he is well pleased to reveal his will to us in Jesus. And I don't want you to miss that. As we move towards the praise of the glorious grace of God the Father, to the praise of the glorious grace of Jesus the Son, we need to see the interpersonal, relational aspect of who God is and what God is doing. Jesus Christ reunites all things for his people. As a plan, verse 10 says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, apparently verse 10 is notoriously difficult to translate. And it's not just uh, difficult for me to translate because I struggle with Greek so much. It is difficult for others to translate because Paul uses a combination of difficult words. 
He's piecing together things that are hard to understand. And so everyone takes a shot at it and everyone's grappling with it and everyone kind of gets within the range of what we believe Paul is driving at here. Paul is talking about the administration of the fullness of times, the the management of space and time, the management of history, all things moving together to a certain point so that at the fullness of time, the Christ is going to be birthed into the world. But the main point here is that Paul says the purpose of all of this is so that in Christ all things may be united, things in heaven and things on earth. I won't even try to pronounce the Greek word that Paul uses here for unite. Unite is a small word, but the Greek word that Paul uses is a word that my dad probably would refer to as a $5 word. It's that big, but it's more like a $15 word. Very difficult to pronounce, very long in Greek. But it's translated very simply in a very small word in English. It could be recap. It could be sum up. But it all comes down to this, that what God is doing in Christ is uniting, gathering together all of the jagged pieces of the cosmos in Christ. I'm sure that all of you are familiar with the movie, The Princess Bride. And one of the characters, Inigo Montoya, has a very quotable line in the movie, several in fact, but the one to which I'm referring has been turned into a gif that appears from time to time. Inigo Montoya is brought to a friend, reunited with a friend, and the friend wants to know what has happened since the time that they separated until now. And Inigo Montoya says, let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. And it is the idea of summing up that Paul is getting at here. There are many things that we would like to explain. There are many things that we would like to express, but there's too much. Suffice it to say for now that what Paul is getting at is that in Christ, we are going to find the sum and summary of all creative and redemptive history. Ever since the fall, things have been falling apart and disintegrating and unraveling. But in Christ, all things are being made new. They're being regathered. They're being put back to right. So that in Christ, everything gets in its right place. And this is the work of Christ that has been going on from the time of the resurrection till now. That in the person and work of Christ, there is no stray molecule or atom in the universe. There is no fleck of dust that will be out of place. Each and every one of us will be put to right and put in our right place in Christ. And this is good news. For as Paul looked around and saw a world that had been falling apart and unraveling, he can now say that in Christ, those things are coming back together again. And we need to see this with the eyes of faith. 
that there is a rhyme and a reason to the history of the world, to the creative and redemptive story of God. Christ is bringing it all back together. Jesus Christ rewards his people. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, last week when we introduced the doctrine of predestination in verse 5, we saw that the Father predestines sinners to be adopted into his family in Christ. And here we see the purpose for which the Father adopts those sinners into his family. It is so that they will receive an inheritance in Christ. Paul used the word adoption, a word that means to set a son in place to bring a son into a family and make him an heir. And so what Paul talked about last week was bringing sinners into the family to make them sons and daughters. But now he is talking about what those sons and daughters receive as members of the family. Now the phrase predestined to obtain an inheritance can mean a couple of different things. The way it's translated here leaves us with the impression that the sons and daughters who were adopted into God's family are going to receive something from God, a thing or stuff, some kind of inheritance from God. And that is one possible way to look at it, that we were chosen to receive an inheritance, that we have a stake or a lot in the riches of the Father's inheritance with Christ. That's one way to look at it. But there is another way to consider this phrase, predestined to obtain an inheritance. And if we go back into the Old Testament, we will see that In Christ, we were chosen as an inheritance for the Lord God. That's a possible interpretation based on what we see in the Old Testament. Israel was God's inheritance. Deuteronomy 4.20 says, The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Yahweh considered the people of Israel to be his inheritance. Later in Deuteronomy 32, there is a beautiful poem, a song of Moses, which says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. 
Now again, both views are possible. It's possible that Paul meant that we will receive something from God in Christ. It's also possible that what Paul meant is that we will be received as God's inheritance in Christ. Either way you go, we see that there is a relationship between God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And it's quite possible to say that the church receives from God and God receives from the church. And then we establish a mutual, a mutually beneficial relationship. But the thing that we receive from God is not stuff and trinkets and doodads. What we receive from God is fellowship, communion, a place in His family, a place to dwell in His household, eternal life with God in the heavenly places. Now, let's summarize and recap what we've seen in Ephesians 1, 7-12. We've seen that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not just make them savable, but to redeem them actually, not potentially. With His blood, He purchased salvation for every sinner chosen by God in eternity past. And as we will see next week, the Holy Spirit applies the redemptive work of Christ to all of those people, all of those sinners whom God has elected and predestined for adoption into His family. Why does the Lord Jesus Christ do these things? Why does He redeem? Why does He reveal? Why does He reunite? Why does He reward? He does it all for the praise of His glory and grace. And so in Christ, we praise God from whom all spiritual blessings flow. And here's the crux of the matter. As I've been saying to you for the last couple of weeks, I repeat again tonight. The thing that we must know is the Father loves you. Jesus is on your side. The Spirit is for you. And God is relentless in His pursuit of you. And now let us fall down before the majesty of our good God in prayer.